PTSD military is different to PTSD civilian. We need to understand that depression that arises from military is different to depression that arises in civilian, and then know what to do about that. Consequence of prolonged stress, sustained stress, is multiple. You're less able to think. You're less able to juggle multiple tasks. Your ability to recover and restore yourself in between tasks much less. Right. Moral injury is an injury to the soul, and everyone rocks up to to a job with a sense of ethics, purpose, purposefulness, and you bring yourself to the job. When that is compromised, there is an injury to the integrity of yourself. We've now done more than three thousand infusions. We've treated more than one hundred and sixty veterans. We have had zero suicides. Hello, everyone. This is Maz. Before we get to this important episode with a psychiatrist, Dr. Alex Lim, just a reminder that the Voices of War will be transitioning to a subscription model. I published an explainer a few days ago and have provided a link to that in the show notes. But in summary. From today until the end of January, this channel will continue publishing full episodes to allow time for those who wish to subscribe to transition to the new channel. However, from February onwards, this channel will publish only the first half of each episode, and each episode will be bookended with a notice and a link to the subscriber-only channel. Those who wish to subscribe can already do so via the link in the show notes. The subscription fee is four US dollars per month, which equates to roughly six Australian dollars. Or 3.75 euros. Okay, so now a little bit about the upcoming episode. As you will hear, I had a lengthy conversation with Dr. Lim about the current state of mental health within our service and veteran communities. I hope that this episode will be a timely reminder, especially as we enter the holiday season, that many of our brothers and sisters in arms and those working as first responders are suffering from a myriad of mental health challenges. If you can, please reach out to an at-risk mate and ask if they're okay. Importantly. As you'll hear in this discussion, there are new treatments on the horizon that bring much-needed hope and promise of more effective results, especially for treatment-resistant illnesses. The successes of ongoing trials need to go mainstream, and taboos and stigmas surrounding alternate treatments need to be challenged. My hope is that this episode with Dr. Lim can be part of that process. One final point: Dr. Lim made reference to current suicide rates in the veteran community as between eight to twelve percent. However, as he shared with me after our recording, the number is twelve per hundred thousand people for the general population, and much higher for ex-serving Australian Defence Force personnel. I have provided a link to those statistics in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the episode now, and I wish you all a safe and joyous festive season and a happy new year. See you in twenty twenty three. My guest today is Dr. Alexander Y. C. Lim, who is an adjunct associate professor of medicine with the Queensland Brain Institute. He is a psychiatrist in private practice, and now almost exclusively looks after members of the Australian Defence Force, the Australian Federal Police, and the veteran community more broadly. He's engaged with research in the areas of neuroscience and precision medicine. In 2019, Dr. Lim set up Australia's first integrated ketamine program for veterans. Known as the Revived Ketamine Program, based in Canberra, it is now in Wagga Wagga and is expected to open in Adelaide in 2023. It will be the subject of an ethics-approved clinical study into long-term effectiveness and safety of ketamine for treatment-resistant depression and treatment-resistant PTSD, starting in February 2023. 
Dr. Lim is also the co-founder of the Z3 Medical Group, where he is the chief medical officer focusing on operational and strategic activities. He joins me today to discuss some of the mental health challenges faced by our veteran community and to shed light on some emerging treatments that could aid on their path to wellness. Alex, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Mass, thank you very much for the invite. It's, it's a thrill to be here. I guess before we get into the perhaps darker side of, uh, of your life and work, maybe we can start with your own background. Uh, what motivated your journey, I guess, into psychiatry first, and then how did you end up working with uh, veterans, ADF people, and AFP? No, for sure. Hey, uh, Mass is a good question. And in fact, psychiatry was not on my card. Uh, I, I didn't do well in psychiatry as a medical student. I hated <laughs> okay. psychiatry. It was this other thing that that uh, non-doctors did. Um, I was gunning for pediatrics, gunning for orthopedic surgery. Uh, and so I got out of medical school, gunning for peds, gunning for orthosurge. And I was doing lots of time up in Mackay uh, as, a, as a non-accredited resident in, in orthopedic work. Loved it, right? And just loved the time I, I had spent in in, uh, in surgical and, and medical uh, stuff. Okay. And and so two years at the time, the the process was you have to spend some time cooking after medical school. So you, you're, you're you're an intern, you're a resident for for the first year. Then only after two years, then you can apply to specialist school. Mm. So I applied to to surgical school, applied to to physician school, particularly pediatrics. And then it was a Wednesday. It was eleven p eleven a.m. And I got a call from my former supervisor in in uh, psychiatry, and she goes, Alex, you haven't put in the application for psych psychiatry do it now and that particular individual she's a wonderful human no one messes with her wow so, yeah you don't, say no. <laughs> don't say no right interviews happened got into all of it and you know the thing that, that that swayed me on the day was the interview panel uh was a bunch of people from newcastle and they were just having a they, they looked like they were having fun being being psychiatrists so i decided on the spot looks like that's my pathway. I want to have fun doing what I'm doing and doing what I love doing. And if that's what humans and individuals who are, who have become psychiatrists are still doing, laughing, really enjoying the space, let me do that. And the rest is history. Uh, and, and the only other factoid that's that's maybe relevant is uh, medicine was not my first career. Medicine was my, was my third career. I started off in, in politics after graduating from university and then really wanted to become a lawyer. And so started my, my, my legal education at Sydney University. And then midway through, uh, I, found, I found medicine after doing a bit of time as an advisor for Philip Ruddock and then realized that actually I want to help people and I don't mm. want the policies and bureaucracies and dilution of, of negotiations to, to change what I could do. Mm. So with the of my boss at the time, he said, off you go, we'll, we'll still be in touch. And uh, some now, I don't know, what's that now, 20 years since that time, medical school specialization, doing what I do now, really, really, really passionate of what I'm doing now. Mm. And and I were still good mates, and he's uh, uh, he's attended my wedding. He's uh, He's been part of baptisms, and uh, it's, it's it's a continuity. It's good. It's life. Wow. Wow. Well, you're certainly not, uh, you know, not short of, uh, of significant achievements in your life. <laughs> so, oh, oh, I don't know about that. It's always team effort. You know, it, it takes a whole village to grow someone. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and I guess that's a very good way to perhaps pivot towards our discussion. You know, it, I guess it takes a whole village to break someone and then perhaps to heal someone. In fact, I do want to follow up on how did you end up working veteran with veterans or ADF and AFP? What motivated that move? 
Yeah. So the first area for psychiatry for me was was very much in child psychiatry work. So, mm, so that's the okay. difference between my, my love for pediatrics and all that. I fell into military and veterans. It was a referral back in 2015 uh, of a patient who's a star-ranked member, uh, ADF, just transitioned out. And the GP asked him to, to have a chat with me. And I remember seeing saying to the general, why are you seeing me? You could see anyone in Australia. I know mm. nothing about this. Why are you seeing me? And because relevance and, and integrity is important, it was because that GP, he said, because that GP sent me across to you, and that's why I'm here. Mm. Uh, so that, that really sparked off the conversation, and I just fell into it. Um, by by the end of 2015, uh, I realized that actually this this area of military medicine, military psychiatry, veterans mm. psychiatry, mental health, back in 2015, we were still in the dark ages. Uh, we had no form, no structure, no framework. We had very few few things by way of guidelines. We didn't have a workforce. We had no planning for workforce specific to military and veterans. Uh, and that's only military and veterans, right? There's the other corollary of first responders as well. Mm, so yeah. I fell into it. And in fact, uh, I found that it started tweaking that political stuff that I used to be really interested in to see, you know, the medicine in front of me seems really straightforward, limited back in 2015, but seems straightforward. Mm. How can we still have this problem? Why is it that the general didn't have a Rolodex immediately to refer to? What's that about? the most junior, unexperienced, flunky in the whole of Australia, seeing a general just retired. Why did that happen? Mm. And so that, that really tweaked my political brain. And I asked, started asking questions and I fell into it. It was good. That's great. I mean, it's a, it sounds like a, an exceptional combination and it is therefore not a surprise why you've become such a vocal and well-known advocate uh, of the veterans community. I mean, firstly, your psych- psychiatric professional training, but then your inclination or 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 maybe uh, uh, understanding of the political domain, as well as your legal training, or, or at least the the beginnings of. I suspect that would have uh, come in handy as well. And uh, perhaps you might have a, a a fighter in you as well, in, a, in an argumentative side, uh, as much as uh, as much as you're smiling now. Uh, so I uh, I think it's probably quite a quite a good combination. And uh, and as a veteran uh, and a serving member, I, I'm glad that uh, that you're uh, fighting this fight for us. So maybe we can now now start diving into, I guess, some of those uh, issues uh, from where mm. you're sitting, from what you see now, seven years into this particular domain, what is the state of mental health within our veteran community, uh, as you see it? Uh, broadly and specific, mm-hmm. uh, there, are, there are broad opportunities and strengths. So let's say writ large, we have a pretty robust college of psychiatrists. We have a very robust college of GPs and psychologists there. So from a workforce general perspective, we have all of the elements that says that this problem of mental health can be managed and dealt with by a system. And so systems in terms of GP, psychologists, social workers, et cetera, all in play, all in mm. play. We need to dive down a little bit deeper. And let's let's consider the, 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 the analogy here that if someone has a physical, medical, or surgical condition, and I like orthopedics, so let's let's dive, let's use that as an analogy. Mm-hmm. You crack a bone, whether it's an upper limb or a lower limb, every GP, every junior doctor, every intern uh, will basically know what to do as a first step, second step, third step. The surgeon then leaves the patient to say, off you go to rehab. Nearly everyone will say in an uncomplicated surgical procedure, you have a pathway that is six weeks upper limb, 12 weeks lower limb, really basic pathways that is accepted all the way through medicine in terms of management of this problem. Mm. So we can 
see it, we can manage it, we know what to do with it, we need to we know how to get that person back into function and back into living again. You take that analogy of medicine and medical uh, specialization, workforce, and pathway of treatment, and you overlay that ac- across to military and veterans. And the same thing doesn't apply. We we don't have an ability to be clear that what we have is something we can see and we can definitively treat and return to function. We have a high rate of chronicity. In other words, we have a high rate of the problem, whether it's PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcohol, etc., having this really long tail that says, I still have this problem, doc, and it's been six months, 12 months, not six weeks, 12 weeks. Mm. And on top of that, we don't have a clear entry point. So if if a member of the veterans community with really bad depression, multiple tours of, of Iraq, Afghanistan, and even then earlier with Somalia, if any if anyone rocks up to the emergency department, is there a protocol that says, I know what to do with this guy? If mm. you rock up to the GP, is there a protocol? Likewise, if you rock up to the MO1 base anywhere in Australia, is there a protocol that says, right, service type, service category, longevity of service, I know what to do with you from a mental health perspective. There's no established guidance. So the, the Australian PTSD guidelines as it stands is far more relevant to civilians as it, as it stands rather than veterans and military. Right. And then you look at the entire cascade, right? We start off with early identification right the way through management of chronic symptoms. And there's no clear pathway. So on-ramping is an important feature that's kind of missing. And if you think about, you know, you guys are all highly trained individuals, right? Whether you go through Cerberus, Edinburgh, 1RTU or 1RTB or Duntroon, yeah, you're all highly trained in terms of problem solving. And mm-hmm. we are as well. So if there's a problem that emerges, we have guidelines, if whether it's bacteria or whether it's surgical, but for mental health and in the population of military and veterans, we need to establish that. So we have the workforce. We need to acculturate the workforce to become to make this an interesting, exciting, awesome subspecialization. We then need to create paradigms of care that says, according to service type, category, longevity of service, where you've been, we need to say that PTSD, military, is different to PTSD, civilian. We need to understand that depression that arises from military is different to depression that arises in civilian, and then know what to do about that, stage one, stage two, stage three. Once we start doing that, we can actually articulate this other thing that I hope for, right? To say, I'm a veteran, and I can rock up to the GP. The veteran has access to, and the GP has a, has a, has a Rolodex access to, a bunch of established experts in this field, whether it's psychiatry, psychology, and we're all working together. That's the end goal. So right now, we don't have that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We definitely don't have that right now. Um, and, and I mean, I, I have a number of my friends who are going through some significant mental health challenges as we speak, uh, veterans, um, and yeah, their experience varies. But yeah, more often than not, it's actually not uh, meeting their hopes or desires or the hopes and desires of the institution because I know the institution wants the best for our soldiers as much as institutionally sometimes you know our hands are tied and perhaps that's the reason because we we might have the workforce but we just don't have a workforce or the people on hand that can have a look okay you know and respond immediately to what a veteran's experience might be but I do want to ask what perhaps this is an obvious question but it might not be to all but why is there a difference between what the civilian world experiences and what our emergency services, uh, AFP, military, veterans experience? Let me give you an example. Um, there's a condition called adjustment disorder. 
and adjustment disorder is a consequence of a stress, not a trauma, a stress. So let's say that uh, in, in, in ordinary life, um, things happen, whether it's a disagreement with a boss or my pet animal dies, uh, a relationship breakdown. We, we, we have a reaction to that. And that reaction might be depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, not coping symptoms. When that happens in civilian land, we often say, hey, mental health day, let's take a break, let's slow down, go for some exercise, take a day off, maybe a couple of days off, recuperate, then re-engage the workforce. Yeah. Mm. In in military first responders, you can't take a day off. You'll be able. You mm. can't say, hey, doc, can you give me a med cert, please? Won't happen because you're you're expected to turn up to work. There's a concept called high allostatic stress. And high allostatic stress uh, is that common scenario in defense where whether you're on training or exercise or you're in deployment cycle, you have to get up, you have to go ahead, you have to do your tasks, you have to do your work and multiple tasks at the same time. You're aware of the expectations, your boss needs, you're aware of the rules of engagement. And you can't say, you can't say, hey, boss, uh, orange card, I just need to take five minutes or a day off. Please. Mm -hmm. You're barely sleeping and it's for a six month deployment cycle, for example. That is the difference. The setting is different. And because the setting is different, the accumulation of traumatic experiences for PTSD, the accumulation of general life experiential stressors occupationally for you guys, place the conditions of PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcohol, etc. in a different light. It mm. makes it more likely, more prone to, and the consequence of that is secondary effects. If you come back, you know, and you've, you've been on six months times two uh, deployment tours of Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, you're on Rockall, or you've just come back and you've been told, hey, you're going to be posted to that place for the next two years, uplift, downlift. You've barely had two weeks with your with your loved ones, with your family, and you're back at it. So therefore, uh, the ability to decompress is short and, and often not really there. Therefore, du the duration of untreated illness gets longer and longer and longer. Mm. In the city world, when someone says, hey, I think I'm a bit depressed. I think I've got symptoms of bad depression. Your loved ones, your family, your, your workplaces might say, hey, I need you to go see your EAP. I need you to go see your GP. Access is easier. Tracking it as, as earlier, treating as earlier. So even that aspect of getting on to treatment, getting that thing noticed, and of course, in defense, right, you get downgraded. No one wants that. I was just going to say this thing, although better, it, it certainly better than the last time I was in, because I, uh, as I might have mentioned to you earlier, I was I was out for some time, and then uh, since coming yeah. back in mid twenty twenty, there's definitely a different. The, the stigma is no longer as prevalent, but it's undoubtedly yeah. still there. Yeah. For sure. And because you guys are a performance organization, right? And relevance is according to performance. You, corporals and sergeants and woes get graded all the time against each other. You don't want to be that person who says, Doc, I and on my med on my on my med file and my purse docs, um, I, I had a period of time when I was unable. It's that's a tough sell. Mm. That's a tough sell. And, yeah. and equally from the MO's perspective, you, you know, MOs receive patients with symptoms. What do you do? And acknowledging that they are on base, in uniform, seeing people in uniform, MOs have, have a relationship with patients. What are their options? Because they want to maintain function, but right now, there's a deteriorating aspect of the patient. But the consequence of saying J34, J31, J32, mm. you know, how do you rehab back from mental health? Yeah, 
Yeah, mm. there are. Some, just for our non-Australian, non-military audience, that's a uh, various gradings of your medical, I guess, deployability and workplace. Uh, yeah, ability to work. Yeah. Yeah. So the consequence of all that, uh, I think, is that you have a system that says we want you to work. We want you to be able to work and to remain relevant. And when you are not able to, if it's physical, happy days, we're going to rehab you because we know exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. If it is mental health, the pathway to getting treatment and back from treatment into a an employable and deployable status, that's less clear. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. creation of stigma and, and barriers. Yeah, of course. And and perhaps another question that uh, I'm sure you've had to deal with previously, uh, and that is also the stigma that um, these kind of health challenges, mental health challenges only occur to frontline units. Uh, and we're now seeing that that's not necessarily the case, although one would suspect and probably expect uh, that our uh, most forward units, uh, the ones under the greatest exposure to combat and war, suffer the most. But of course, those in supporting and rear echelons are also suffering. Is that accurate? Absolutely accurate. The entire defense force, my appreciation and understanding is that recruitment retention is uh, is just pretty poor right now. Mm. So in so many units, there are not enough staff members. Therefore, everyone left behind are doing multiple tasks within the same time period. And mm. that puts a high degree of stress for a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and as each each unit member suffers the consequence of prolonged stress, and we know that physiologically as well as psychologically, stress leads to a deterioration of performance over time. And if they start feeling that that delta of of performance, they might start taking some time off. If if given that, and the moment you have that that team that team's capacity, then it gets further degraded, right? So in in the non frontline and non operational sense, you have every unit that is under pressure, under stress right now. Uh, right. I've got clerks who are doing five different jobs because no one else can do that. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that in that case, can we say that that stress leads to something like post traumatic stress disorder, or is there a different condition that one would end up with, right? Because it's not necessarily, right. and maybe this is a good way to, a good chance also to just confirm for us what PTSD is or what we understand it to be right now, uh, because I yep. think it is also a misunderstood term and it's thrown around a little bit, uh, perhaps inaccurately at times. Yeah, no, for sure. So let's be let's be super clear. According to the criteria, you have you have stress and you have trauma. Mm. And trauma, as it stands right now, uh, has has to do with exposures to serious injury. Has expo has to do with exposure to life and death. Um, and of course, people who are on deployment, particularly frontline troops inside the wire, outside the wire, particularly uh, with IEDs in Afghanistan and rockets, etc., you're exposed to that environment. Uh, likewise, in particular, high-level trainings, right? So you're off for selection, whether it's East Coast or West Coast, uh, that high level of exposure to serious injury, very likely. So you have a range of traumatic experiences that are typical for those frontline frontline troops, and likewise with the first responders as well. Mm. And even though we know that pre-deployment training is there for periods of the six months to really acculturate the person and the human into the operational cycle and, and tempo, the mere accumulation of the exposures to those traumatic events is what sets up for PTSD in defense. Mm. It's not just a one-off, it is the multiples, yeah? Now, different distresses. Consequent co consequent stress or uh, consequent uh, symptoms of stress are clear, but stresses are different. Stresses are your everyday events of disagreements, lack of engagement, of difficulties where there's an expectation and you don't and you don't have the consequence of that expectations. Those are stressful, and it's a gradient of stress. 
Stimulation of highly stressful environments causes a very similar effect to what PTSD does. And we can show that in, in rat studies, uh, poor rats, we, we've shown mm. in rats, degradation of, of, of neuronal circuitry, et cetera. Mm. Traumatic injuries uh, has a particular characteristic as well. So if we start talking about PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, I want to put a, put aside uh, whether or not we're talking about DSM criteria, which is the American volume, or it's ICD, which is the European and Australian volume. But let's just say PTSD is a constellation of symptoms that we can say tie together. And therefore, once they tie together in a reliable fashion, we'll call that a syndrome. Mm-hmm. So syndrome of trauma-related events and related symptoms then are tied together. And it says that if you have a number of these things, you likely have PTSD. And if you have a dysfunction in your personal or occupational relationship life, the D then becomes invoked. So D for disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really tricky here is establishing the D part for any stressful disorders or stress-related disorders or trauma-related disorders or mood-related disorders, because in defense, you're not allowed to cry sick. You're not allowed to take a sickie. And so the criteria of occupational dysfunction is often very, very difficult to to, to articulate um, because you guys rock up, you turn up, you put on uniform, you crack on. The, the after hours consequence is pretty huge, right? So alcohol misuse, relationship stresses, and multiple divorces, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Those become telltale signs of PTSD, of adjustment disorder, of major depressive disorder, even though the human still rocks up to work in uniform. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. PTSD, coming back to, to that environment, it is also a unique beast because Whilst I say someone has PTSD and I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not just talking about the person's brain is dysfunction. I'm talking about the whole human mm. and the entire consequence of PTSD. It is not just the brain state, but the downflow of that are endocrine, so hormone problems. Neuronal circuitry goes a little bit frazzled. So I'm looking for signals of concentration problems. I'm looking for evidence of some cardiovascular, immunological, and even some uh, some signal of rheumatoid where you have the signal that the body is fighting against itself. Right. All of those risk factors are elevated when you have PTSD. So we now say that PTSD is an all-of-body or multi-system disorder. It is not just a psychiatric disorder. It's a, it's a multi-system disorder. Right. When, when that then ties in, right, to go, hey, I've got a guy who's, who's served 20 years in defense. Doesn't, I don't care which service they, that they've served in, which corps they've served in. They've served 20 years in defense. The likelihood that they have musculoskeletal injuries, pretty high. Hmm. Yeah, no and when doubt. you yeah. Add muscular, yeah, and when you add musculoskeletal injuries and pain onto PTSD, the likelihood of depression starts to come up. Hmm. And when you have PTSD and depressive disorder and pain, the likelihood of anxiety disorder comes up. And so you have the you have this cascade where psychiatrists have to be aware that you're now dealing with the entire system of the person and the person's network of people, hmm. because you'll have relationship dysfunction, alcohol abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah. And I guess those systems interplaying, if one is corrupted, it will, chances are it's going to corrupt another one and the kind right. of compounding effect of the breakdown in one area, which is why wellness, I guess, right. is about the whole person, right? It is not about being fit or, uh, you know, having yeah. your blood markers as 
healthy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, for example, employment is a is an awesome is an awesome end state to reach for because mm. getting employed, doing something meaningful, uh, is itself really therapeutic, right? Having structure, having routine, having function, and that's true for everyone. A key difficulty is. When you get to the point where you can't work and and all the paperwork and all of the assessment says that you are now TPI, uh, mm-hmm. total impairment, and DVA will accept that. I don't I don't entirely accept that forever. And so I say that for now, I've got a human who has TPI. I'm happy with that. I'll work with that. I'm not yet satisfied that this is the case for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. so I work really hard to, to try to get some function back. And, and how is that... Uh- Perceived more broadly, uh, I guess, in the DVA Department of Veteran Affairs, the entire kind of process of uh, yeah. treating a veteran, and particularly the kind of the permanent impairment, uh, because that in itself has a stigma, right? Because yeah. and, and and I know from my own personal experiences and certainly experiences of my very very close friends, the 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 word permanent in it is is a that in itself is a shock to the system and you yeah. know traumatic in a way i mean you know i, yeah. I certainly don't want to overplay it but it's, it, it is a significant when somebody tells you you have you know a permanent impairment for somebody who uh and and and, and here in particular i can speak uh, about members of our special forces community who i know very very well um to say something like that uh to somebody who's operated at that level of capacity and competence uh, and has achieved so much, right? And was selected based on their ability to perform under duress. What is the impact of that? Yeah, the impact on a human uh, when someone says you are down and you are unable to function, and says the doctor, mm. and this is not permanent. Yeah, effectively, I've chopped someone's legs off, and and that that is a shock to the system, mm. to be sure. And mm. and also the that that particular patient and their spouse and their family, right? And and oftentimes the TPI claim might be successful based on the medical medical advice and medical evidence. But what do you do with a guy who's now 42 years old? There is still decades in their lives. What are we expecting if we're not in, in this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy way, right? We said that the that the that the patient has TPI. Great. Mm. In 10 years' time. In 10 years' time, what are we expecting him to do? Because if we're not putting forward items of relevance, items of structure, routine, and benefit to him, them, her, and the the entire family, what are we expecting to happen? Mm. And so the downside is that in medical school, in in medicine as a general, we are pathologists. We look for what's wrong. Uh, We often don't really look for strengths. One of the the key the key bits that has been for the last ten years has been this uh, movement called the recovery movement, and mm-hmm. that very much is a much more strength based idea that says even if you have schizophrenia, which is a horrible disease, mm-hmm. even if you have bad depression and you need to have ECT multiple times a year, what are your strengths? What can you do? And what can we what can we force multiply? What can we start doing mm-hmm. in order to affect a greater effect? Because mm. the human still has an identity, yeah. My 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 story and my and my narrative with every human with every patient I see these days is to say, right, what are you up to? Where are you up to? Right now, I can see massive agitation, massive mood stuff, bad sleep, poor sleep, irritability, and and really short fuse. I get that. We're going to work on that for the next three, six, nine months. Mm. I want you to focus on all of the stuff that you can do. So you can get out of the door, you can go for a walk, you can say good day to the next door neighbor, sweet, happy days, mm, happy days. Mm, mm. Next step, as you get better, my expectation, as you get better, 
what are you going to do differently with a new superpower? So mm. you're not SASI anymore. That's cool. You're not you're not in Holdsworthy anymore. You're not training with a mission deployment briefing every day or every week. What are you going to do for yourself and for your new unit? That's your mm. family, the mm. community, mm. your friendship group. What can you do? And it might be something small, right? It might be something like I had coffee with my mate who's struggling. Mm. Or I spent time with my year four daughter for the first time in 10 years. Hallelujah. Mm. That's a win. Mm. Because when you were back in SF and I said, hey, your family member wants to have coffee and spend time with you developing this school-based assignment, how much time did you have? Mm. And how mm. guilty did you feel not being able to do that with her or mm. with him? Mm. And mm. now you can. Happy mm. days. Let's, let's do that. So identity is key to the clinical journey. And if we're not careful, we lose the person whilst treating PTSD, depression, et cetera. That's so wonderful. And, and, and it, it warms me to hear it described as that because it oftentimes when we talk about PTSD, and, and again, just through some of my own experiences with my own friends, it's not necessarily discussed as that. It is that, you know, the whole person and identity piece is so heartwarming because defense, any call, any service, doesn't matter. There is an embodied identity that comes with it. And for most of us, it becomes a significant part of our life, that identity. And when it's under threat through illness, mental or otherwise, uh, when one is leaving or discharging for medical reasons or otherwise, and that identity no longer plays a key part in our lives, that is a huge, huge loss to one oneself. And I guess finding that, finding a new identity and reconnecting uh, to your family, to a new sense of purpose in a new workplace, whether it's volunteering for your local surf life saving club, doesn't matter. Uh, something where you can actually feel like you're contributing again, because that's what service and defense is. It's about contributing to a belief that you're part of something good and holy. Yep, 100%. That, that actually takes me to my next question, and that is of moral injury, which is, yes. as we know, very different to PTSD. But again, is uh, if I'm correct, uh, still a loosely defined term and one we haven't really come to terms with, or at least there are competing definitions uh, yeah, across absolutely. the kind of moral psychology, moral ethics, military ethics. There's still kind of a, it's still a competing term. What do you understand as moral injury, and you know what are, what are, what are the causes that if, yeah. if causality can be attributed, but what are causes yeah. if you could attribute them to it that uh, that lead to moral injury? Yeah, no, for sure. So um, my my reference my reference for moral injury is uh, is to say moral injury is an injury to the soul, and everyone rocks up to to a job with a sense of ethics, purpose, purposefulness, and you bring yourself to the job. When that is compromised, there is an injury to the integrity of yourself. Mm. Now. It goes beyond that, right? It goes beyond the idea of self. It goes to a sense of who am I? How was I formed as a human? How was I formed to tell the difference between right and wrong? And I'm doing a job, but my decision points now might compete with the chain command, might compete with the with the commander's intent, might compete with the mission success. I have to wear that in my own deliberations of right and wrong. And in my soul, I know what I did was correct. Mm. Or in my soul, I knew that what I was forced to do was not correct. Mm. And then you have the elevations of attribution. Mm. So I was the one entirely, entirely the cause of that, responsible for that. Mm. Or I was in a position where I was one of the people in a chain of events. Mm. 
And so, you know, the, the, there are various functions in defense where the chain of command is very clear, where the risk of moral injury also is very clear, because sometimes the decision points at particularly higher levels are not translated in the moment to the people on the ground. Equally, when expectations of doctrine don't conform with the behaviors of others around you and the lack of ability to enforce a better standard, that also sits with moral injury because it's an injury to the soul. Mm. The other bit that I think is 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 so wonderful at the same time as, as awful, if I can use that, there's a soul in defense and everyone shares this. It's like a church of of working in this in mm, this organization. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. And there's a belief, there's a there's an integrity. And when you hear and see your mates going through a particularly rough time because of a process or a person who's either a peer or a senior, and you think, why? And that should never have happened. The ability to affect change, even when you're a one star, is difficult. Mm -hmm. And when you're unable to see change in the organization you've signed on to, service, right? It's soul destroying. That's so powerful, and I, I know for a fact that that will resonate with many of my audience, and it's certainly something I discuss a lot on this pod, and that is, you know, when your expectations are dislocated, right? Yeah. Defense, at its core, is meant to be a noble profession, one you join to go and help people and do things, uh, and, you know, I'm sure that's what most of us will say, you know, I've joined to help those who can't help themselves, to make the world a better place idealized versions of ourselves, right? But that is an identity that we embrace and hopefully most of us embody as we go through our training because we are inculcated with certain values that we are expected expected to uphold and assessed on throughout our careers. But when, when your organization doesn't meet the, the expectations it expects of you or you perceive it as such by yeah. perhaps going to a war that is not necessarily crystal clear that it's a moral and just war, or that that war has a clear and easily understood purpose. I'm guessing the foundations that one has built on since joining start crumbling. And I know for a fact that that's these are discussions that I've had with uh, some of my peers. You know, where we've many of us have asked ourselves, "Hold on, am I part of the problem or part of the solution by wearing the uniform?" Uh, and I wonder is is, the, is that is, does that broadly sum up what your uh, what potentially could lead to moral injury? Yeah, no, hundred percent. So it, it, res- it resonates with me with me very deeply. So uh, one of the one of my joys being a psychiatrist is that I haven't stepped foot in AMAP in in uh, outside Dubai. I haven't been part of operational theaters of conflict and war. I get to, however, listen and understand and appreciate the journeys that my patients have have been through and writ large and writ across multiple uh, multiple theaters. What's really clear is that I would say a hundred percent of people who join up defense actually want to do good. Mm. And they they see themselves as being a part of a greater, more noble whole. There are things that happen in organizations, including the ADF, and it's been subject to, to royal commissions, and it's been subject to inquiries where humans behave very badly. Mm-hmm. Equally, uh, participation in activities that may not be as clearly ethical as once thought upon obviously starts to raise some questions. Mm. One of the many aspects, I think, of large organizations is how do you keep the integrity and belief of the individuals in play? Mm. And sometimes, sometimes you're asking to do things that are very difficult to do. Mm. And sometimes on the, on the fact of faith, mm. and because you've been ordered. It's a, it's a lawful order. You just have to go ahead and do that. Another example where 
uh, someone spell uh, uh, his wife had just delivered a baby and, and there's some complications to that delivery but your boss has said we are en route to Townsville to deploy or your critical asset and you need to attend to this rather than your own family how do you how do you make a how do you make a decision there are other aspects involving sexual assaults that are soul destroying but actually it attacks the moral fabric of the organization any mm-hmm. organization that doesn't treat that with the respect that it needs to be uh, needs, needs to be given so right the way through this amazing organization that has latin phrases yeah to explain mm. some of the ethos yeah that's right you have you have this amazing ability to form the individual break them down reform them into a unit and then to raise platoons and to raise uh, to raise squadrons and then to deploy in a coordinated fashion either as australian military defense efforts and or other international uh, assets as well that is so amazing so mm. amazing mm. Uh, and it speaks to the real traditions that i think everyone who wears the uniform understands and holds mm. because of those expectations the risk of moral injury is therefore i think much higher Mm. and to maintain expectations at that higher level also therefore means that when there's a fall down from grace you need to have very clear mechanisms that apply to everyone regardless of rank that an investigation happens without fear of of uh, of bias and that the outcome is good and just and when you have that happy days mm. when you don't have that you erode your moral integrity of the organization not just the individual yeah and i guess where i guess we you're seeing this much better than I am but just as a as a as a as an observer from inside the organization I guess we're seeing a little bit of that erosion uh, happening right now one thing that's uh, that spikes my interest as well is when we're talking about stress and the impact of stress yep. correct me if I'm wrong but we know that when stress levels are elevated our yep. ability to make uh, ethical decisions is also degraded and if that stress is continuous over time our ability to stick to our moral frameworks to our moral compass to our moral identity to our moral self becomes much harder to do again this is something that i'm hoping to look at in some of my own research in the near future but it's not often discussed when looking in relation to for example some of our soldiers special forces members who are alleged to have done things we've uh, since come to consider as war crimes to what extent do you think this needs to be part of the equation and are we actually paying enough attention to the science of what we know about stress consequence of prolonged stress sustained stress is multiple you're less able to think you're less able to juggle multiple tasks your ability to recover and restore yourself in between tasks much less right so uh the the purpose of having rockle is to allow people to decompress and come back Mm. So let's mm-hmm. say that we, let's just, let's just say that stress management is key in CASA, the the the, the airline uh, accreditation standards and safety bureau. Fatigue is critical mm. because stress it, it is stressful flying a commercial jet. <laughs> it, it's stressful becoming a pilot. It mm. is stressful maintaining safety paradigms in your head whilst managing different vectoring. And and so by 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 corollary right now, there's there's conversations and discussions about fatigue and fatigue management, and at the same time, uh, whether or not a single pilot model of service is a safe idea or not. Hmm. So let's just say there is clearly a link between the ability of the human to think as clearly and as optimally uh, as needed, and prolonged and sustained stress degrades that cap- that capacity. Hmm. Lots of physiological data to 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 associate with that. My my input there is that moral frameworks 
need to be established at the very, very earliest point in the formation of a defense member. Mm. So um, second nature. I think that moral uh, moral training should be part of the fabric of every school because it starts from a very early point. A lot like, you know, that um, uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, we, we started having a shift in behavior with, with seatbelts because mm-hmm. we advertised to children to remind the adults in the car to, to click, clack, mm-hmm. what was the phrase? Click, clack something. Click, clack, and, front uh, and back. That's it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. So, in fact, that was about a time when I arrived to Australia. So I remember that being a part of my indoctrination into the country, coming from a place right. like Bosnia, where if you wear a seatbelt, that's embarrassing. Like, you know, <laughs> nobody wears a seatbelt. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, that's. Yeah. What about a really good word? Indoctrination is required. Mm. And indoctrination into moral frameworks of understanding is important. And it, it should be the same, it should be so for all levels of, of hierarchy. So whether or not you are a top-level general, a reminder of your ethical premises and foundations. So from a from a medical training perspective, ethical training began when we were in first year because mm. we appreciated that our moral duties are multiple. And when we are highly stressed, working really, really hard, there will be a call and invitation to do some unethical behaviors. And so from a very early point, that was part of the training. It was a necessary part of the training. So mm. indoctrination into moral frameworks, I think, needs to happen at a very early stage so that when you are stressed and out of your mind, stressed, and mm. you are tasked with multiple things, you can reach back in and go, it is part of doctrine that I have a moral framework. Mm. And when a senior member says, I want you to do something, you could then reach back into the doctrine of moral framework and say, I actually wonder about something different here, sir, ma'am, mm. and have that conversation so that the risk of moral injury is lessened and the risk of moral engagement is heightened, even when it is a split second. It's, it could be a five-second convo about what is the right thing here to do. Mm, uh, once you have that, yeah. it, it, I think it elevates it elevates the conversations. Couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it it it, it absolutely forms the a principal pillar of what it means to be a member of defense is to have a sound and well inculcated, well developed, and well self reflected uh, moral framework. Uh, as you go forward, and I and, and I couldn't agree more that it's you know from the lowest level soldier to the highest general, because ultimately we also expect those highest level of generals to have the moral courage and the moral their own moral frameworks intact to be able to say back to government, you know what, I don't think this is a war that is uh, justifiable. Uh, that is in accordance with our own just war tradition, etc. Uh, which, notwithstanding the fact that if government says you go, we go, but we need to develop the, I guess moral courage, really, uh, to speak up and and be well informed uh, about the impacts a war like that might have on our workforce. Uh, perhaps that's what we're, uh, what we're seeing at the moment. Um, so what is the issue then? What, you know, given, given we're talking about the state of our workforce at the moment, uh, what needs to be done, what are you seeing as the biggest problem right now? Because we've had, uh, everybody knows it's quite well uh, established now that the uh, suicide rates uh, amongst veterans, particularly those of the, of the younger demographic leaving uh, the ADF, is elevated. Why and why do we not seem to be able to make headway in this? Yeah, look, multiplex problem. Uh, reference point: there is a there is an increasing suicidality risk uh, and rates of suicide in the general community. Mm. Uh, with, with different hotspots and, and young people particularly, uh, and then another hotspot later on in life for, for, for particularly men. I think there are very deep and broad conversations happening around this right now. My input to that is this. 
we need to at least bring defense and veterans mental health into a particular population where it is normal to be able to speak some veteran language. And it's true whether you are a GP, psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker. Right now, we don't even have an ability to speak and therefore understand some common language with the people we're treating. Mm. And unless you have that bridge of language, how do you expect the, the human in front of you, my patient, to trust you implicitly if you have not bothered to understand the world that they lived in? Mm. So trust is and trust is is important because for that person suffering and you know how many times how many times have I assessed someone from from defense and they've given me the kind of golden view to go I was fine I was highly resilient I've been through thirty years of service I've been through all of these conflict uh, theaters of conflict uh, and war but I'm fine I don't I sleep well nothing nothing to see here. Yeah. Uh, mm. And it's only because you start probing with particular understanding of culture mm. that they've been through and really going to, hey, really? Seriously? Mm. Mm. When you're, you know, downtime, what yeah. goes on? Um, yeah. Do they then exactly. put their guard down and start yeah. talking, speaking the truth? Yeah. Because yeah? we all we all know how to uh, give you and Sykes uh, the smoke and mirrors, right? <laughs> and, and we've all done it. I mean, I, I've, I've done it myself in post deployment psychological, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. interviews. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know exactly what the answer is that the psych on the other end wants uh, to tick that uh, fine, can go and leave, et cetera. Yes. All of us do. And, and that's 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 yeah. so spot on. Yeah. Yeah. So until there's a trusting environment and the, mm. the kind of trust that is born out of common language, but also common understanding, right? So once upon a time, I understand that there were uh, medical officers attached to teams. And when that was the case, it's pretty difficult to bullshit the guy who's there with you all the time. Mm. And and so and so therefore trust and 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 integrity leading to respect. When you are leading a troop, uh, it's because you've gained their buy-in and they accept your leadership. When it's a medical environment, it's the same. It's the same. And mm. oftentimes you have gradients of the trust where you know I have a guy who right now just told me twelve months post starting treating him that he's actually smoking and he's actually uh, smoking drugs and taking cocaine. Mm. And you go, yep. Kind of suspected it, but I'm glad you've brought it up now. So mm. now let's crack on and do some stuff. Respecting the individual to also hold back enough to go, I'm not going to tell you everything about me, doc, because not everything is relevant here, mm. but equally enough trust to go, I trust you, I'm going to tell you the stuff that I need to get to get started to work on. Mm. So suicidality is a deeply personal uh, reflection on life and death. The point of uh, giving up hope about living to then take on the path to death is a deeply personal one. Not every suicide is preceded by psychiatric or psychological intervention. Not every one of them. Equally, not every suicide is preceded by a clear depressive uh, syndrome or clear PTSD syndrome. Very much some people choose to end their lives. Hmm. The ones where we can say, hey, you've got depression, you've got PTSD, you are at much higher risk of suicide. That's the population I think we need to increase our interventional integrity, interventional ability. Mm. And so everyone coming out from defense, social dislocation, you have mm. a transition space where grief is happening. Uh, you are yearning for that relevance from before that you don't have today. You've been a highly skilled weapon in defense. You're not a highly skilled weapon in your family. And so what then happens to the conditions that you already have been diagnosed with? It gets worse. Of course, mm -hmm. it gets worse. What interventions have you got? Well, you've got the people 
clinicians delivering those interventions. The question now is, hey, your doctor and your psychologist, your social worker, your nurse, do they get it? Hmm. And if the answer is, I just go because, you know, they give me scripts and I, I take 12 beds every day. Hmm. Uh, hmm. It's a missing link here, right? And so the missing link, as well as the treatments that are being proposed, I want all of that to get better. Mm. And if we can affect a 30% delta to get people less wanting to suicide because they can see a better connection with the clinicians, a better treatment paradigm, and a way through it out of their problems back into their community and families, hallelujah. Mm. I'll take that any day. Mm. Mm, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. That's that's, that's wonderful. Uh, what, what is it about the kind of more traditional treatments that we have found are simply not sufficient in treating the kind of full spectrum or even any spectrum of the kind of conditions that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're, we're talking about specifically population of defense personnel and the, and the kind of characterized characteristics of the combat person of the combat personnel. Where you've been you've been exposed to a, a number of high allostatic stresses. It's been high kinetic, high tempo uh, for a very long period of time, and you've been physically injured. You've been psychologically challenged and maybe injured as well. And then downstream, the constellation of everything comes together, and you're unable to work anymore. You're you're exiting and you're 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 in transition toward a discharge date. Mm, yeah, mm, mm-hmm. let's talk about that population now. What do we have right now in conventional medicine? We have psychotherapy. And we have specific psychotherapies to deal with traumas. And in themselves, when they are studied and studied very well, and this has been replicated many times, the ability of that psychotherapy to produce a really good effect is really high. It's Mm. awesome. Everyone in the world will say EMDR, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, all these trauma psychotherapies have an amazing ability to get people better. Sweet. Mm. Mm. Selection, though, is is key because the dropout rates of those psychotherapies is massively high. Right. And so if you're able to get a psychologist who's trained up in that stuff to deliver that stuff to you, happy days. Step one. Mm. If that person, if that clinician is skilled with military members, step two. You've got <laughs> yeah. to buy it. Yeah. Great. However, Two the big dropout, <laughs> correct, right? <laughs> the dropout rate of clients uh, attending those psychotherapies and finding it too hard and dropping out is something like thirty to fifty percent for mm. civilians. Mm. Huge data study that, that 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 got published, I think it was in the states, then showed that for if you are a military member, where the injuries and stressors are military related, the rate of dropout is one point six times what it is for civilians. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah. So. The ability to do that long-term, awesome, will we'll give you the stuff if you stick with it, yeah? Dropout rate's massive. The, the issue, therefore, is preparedness of the human to undergo that treatment mm. so that we get better return of investment, better stickiness, so that the human, the member, the patient, the client gets through the program to get to the end where you know they'll be, they'll be better, Yeah. yeah? Yeah. To elevate to, to get better from dropout rates right now. The next bit is medications. And everyone will accept it now that medications by themselves, SSRIs, the first line, they don't really work all that well when it comes to treating the disorder. So if I say to you, hey, here's a tablet, it's an antibiotic. I want you to take this tablet because I can already see this medication is great for that particular bacteria that you've got. Yeah. Mm. The ability of that treatment to affect the change and the cure, pretty high. Hmm. 
PTSD, depression. Stay with PTSD. If I gave someone an SSRI for a really bad PTSD, the likelihood, the, the, the amount of change I expect at a maximum is 30%. So yeah. that 30% might be really meaningful. They might, yeah, might be life-saving. Right, yeah. yeah right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. They yeah. might be less less uh, irritable. And mm. their, their spouses might say, hey, you're a better human. Keep taking this medication. I haven't taken away your PTSD, but I've resolved some of the intensity of the symptoms. Mm. Yeah? So medications for, from psychiatric perspective for PTSD management is about symptoms management, not about disorder management. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Understand this as well, right? We have pain, PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcohol, relationship dysfunction, unemployability, TPI. That's the constellation. Mm, yeah. Mm. Medications by themselves, Delta 30% if you're lucky. So just to confirm that I understand what you mean, that medication, if, if I'm not taking the medication, but I'm self-medicating through alcohol, potentially is achieving, it's, it's rounding out those edges that you know medication otherwise should perhaps do. Yeah. Correct. So mm. you're all good problem solvers. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And if the problem, if the problem's at hand, you want to solve it. You don't want to be a bad human. Mm. You don't want to be arguing and being a, a rat bag at home with your with your young kids and mm. with your spouse. So mm. you want to be a better human at home. So you're going to do anything possible to to stop that feeling and that cycle of violence to, to yourself. Mm. So alcohol, obviously. And you know, alcohol's everywhere in defense. Mm justice. Mm. So the next step is if medications writ large is not really going to produce a better outcome, what about medications plus psychotherapy? Mm. And for PTSD, there is some benefit, but it's not a massive benefit. Wow. Does it matter which one comes first, psychotherapy first or medications first? It doesn't matter. Wow. Interesting is within the house of psychotherapy, there is some really good data that says, for example, if you do the short course psychotherapy to help you sleep, do that first, and mm. then you do the hard stuff later, that actually produces better outcomes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess once you, if you're well rested, right? I mean, if you, the importance of right. sleep can't be overstated. Yeah. And also, once you've done the shorter course of psychotherapy, you understand what it's about and you understand that the psychologist is trying to help you. Yeah. It's hard but you're going to get a benefit and you get some early wins on the board, you're more likely to stick with it with the longer stuff. Mm. Yeah. So mm. now we're proposing that we have a shorter course of some kind of stabilization phase treatment before we start the longer course of the hard mm. stuff. Mm. Okay. Medications. Medications, we're now at a point where we're saying, hey, we understand from, from research the physical problems that happen with PTSD. At the brain level, we know that it degrades the dendrites, it degrades the axons. And so mm. the signaling and the integrity of the brain cells start to fall away. Medications such as SSRIs really take far too long to really have any beneficial impact on that aspect of PTSD. So Yale talked about this in terms of, let's stop talking about PTSD. We need to talk about this in terms of synaptic disconnection syndrome. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Change the narrative. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 That's because great. You, you, you sign up to defense, you know, you're going to get injured and you wear that with pride. Yeah. Mm. I've got this shrapnel. I've broken my vet and I've got all of these hip joints and backache problems. You wear that with the pride. What about PTSD? PTSD is not carried with pride, mm. but what about brain injury? What about traumatic brain injury? And if we start saying synaptic disconnection syndrome, that's a little bit sexy. Yeah, and, and and it also removes it from the, oh, you're you know you're you're, you're going to be crazy, you know you can't be trusted exactly. mentally. You're you're That's not right. all there. You weren't strong enough. You know all of that. That's right. All of those kind of narratives that are built 
around the stigma so, of mental health challenges yeah, or correct, injury. Correct. So this is not a failure of resilience. Mm. Yeah. This is a consequence of your resilience in the operational tempo. Mm. Because of that, your brain got affected. Huh. And we can show you all of these amazing slides and hopefully one day, not too far, not too, not too far into the future, hopefully February next year, we right. can start spinning some heads and particularly Queensland, QBI has been amazing with this. We can show you, we can show you what's been happening and we can then enter into the next phase of treatment uh, that we've developed here in Canberra and to then show the new strands of signaling, the new strands of brain cells that are occurring in real time. Wow. And we can do that. QBI has been able to do that for the past 10 years. I think it's cool tech. And they're like, oh, we've been doing that for 10 years. Okay, cool. <laughs> just you. hasn't gone mainstream, I guess, in that sense. Not mainstream, correct. So so is this then part of the, as part of the intro where we talked about your uh, your ketamine uh, trials? Yes. Is that part of it? And, and perhaps this is a good way to pivot because this is certainly an area of my interest uh, or psychedelics in general right. because I've, I've read research myself. And when I read that, uh, you know, you had done uh, the first trials of ketamine, uh, which I know is, uh, is different, but it uh, still falls under the psychedelics broad umbrella. Uh, I was really interested to talk to you about it. Uh, so maybe, um, yeah, maybe we can uh, jump into that. Uh, you know, what is this treatment? What is ketamine? Why do psychedelics do what they do? And what do you see as the way forward? No, for sure. Thanks for that. My wheelhouse is ketamine. So an interesting aspect is that we, we can all appreciate in psychiatry that for PTSD, and particularly military PTSD, the ability for psychiatric drugs to take a meaningful effect, pretty small. Mm. Therefore, the ongoing residual symptoms under PTSD, depression, et cetera, remain. The likelihood, therefore, of someone rocking up to my office day one, and I'm thinking, I'm going to give you a couple of pills to take. And that person coming back in six months time, hmm. having tried many, many pills and still affected by PTSD and depression, pretty high. Hmm. So we call that when there's been a failure of multiple trials of treatment and still the ongoingness of the symptoms, we call that condition treatment-resistant PTSD, hmm. treatment-resistant depression. Okay. So in conventional psychiatry for treatment-resistant depression, we have a series of other, of other treatments. And in particular, we have TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, now available through PBS since December 14th last year. And we also have uh, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, ECT, and that's been around for a very long time. Now, I want to be very cautious about this. ECT's major side effect is a degradation of the memory circuit. And so people who undergo ECT might feel better, and they often do, 70% chance of feeling better. However, they often lose memory. And they might have ongoing memory loss as well as historical memory loss. Is that why Histor they feel better? Because the memories no. have been... No. Okay. Right. No. right, right. Uh, and so ECT in relation to PTSD... If you ask, uh, there's a guy called Professor Zachary Steele. He used to he used to do a lot of, I, I'm sure he do, still does lots of lecturing circuits at Richmond. One of the key bits I took away from one of his, his lectures was PTSD is a failure of the brain to learn something new. In other words, you're no longer unsafe. Stop pretending you are unsafe. The brain hmm. still thinks that you're under threat and danger. Mm, mm, so the learning circuits compromise. And in fact, uh, lots of research data now that says PTSD after treatment, the aspect that is the least able to be shifted through active treatment is that ability to concentrate, to attend, attentional circuits remain degraded. If ECT compromises your learning and the problem of PTSD is a problem of learning, why would I want to do that? Hmm. Mm. So 
TMS itself is a newer is a newer um, therapy. The evidence for it in terms of PTSD is there and it's growing, but it's not yet it's not yet robust. So we we then have this interesting dilemma of what do we do? Because I have this human who's suffering and multiple pills, not really cutting it. And typically in, in back in back in 2019, up, up until the time that this ketamine program came up, I'd have patients who've been in and out of hospitals serially, and they would be taking at least eight to 10 medications a day. Mm. And the side effects of all of those medications, particularly quite dis- disabling as well. Yeah, mm. standard, because we're trying to keep this human alive. Mm. Mm. Difficult for living and difficult for quality of life. So, um, so back in 2019, I reached out to 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 Yale University, went across there for some training under the chief of, sorry, the former chief of anesthesiology training across there, and got trained up in ketamine, and came across back here and spoke with uh, the chief health officer at the time, uh, and still today, Jenny Furman. And hmm. Jenny and I, we had we went through at great lengths. Uh, what are the current solutions? What can we do for our veterans, et cetera, et cetera? And the interesting aspect is we just don't have any effective tools by way of medications that deal with treatment-resistant depression. Mm. We're still in the woods with treatment-resistant PTSD. We also have an additional problem of suicidality because that's still ringing pretty high. So I, so we talked about ketamine, and she agreed that as a pilot program, we can start. And mm. she gave a particular funding code to be able to do that. And because I was so concerned about safety for my patients, I said to the hospital that I wanted to do this, we must do this as if we are the Volvos of medicine. Safety first, 100% safety first, airbags mm. everywhere. Mm. And, and also, you don't want to set a very poor precedent, right, given the correct. kind of incipient and new nature of this, yeah. Yeah, correct. So we had to design this really cautiously so that safety would be number one priority. So reached out to my mates in Anesthesia Land, and one of our good mates said, hey, she had a quick look at the at the literature around this. And because ketamine is an anesthetic medication, the real experts at this are anesthetists. Hmm. And because they're the experts, I reached out to them. And thankfully, uh, Dr. Val Kwa, a, a really good friend of ours, looked into this, reached out to her seniors, and a bunch of them had dinner. They came back to me after a couple of days and said, there's no issue. We can deliver this. And so I presented to the medical advisory committee across at four different hospitals in Canberra. And every time, right, every time the, the anesthetist on the, on the MAC, the MAC, rolled their eyes and said, mm-hmm. Alex, what you're asking us to do is so low level. The dose you're asking us to do is not anesthetic level. You don't need an anesthetist. You just need a CMO, a career medical officer to deliver it. We'll just supervise. Hmm. And I said, no, 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 no. You understand. You understand. It's a psych program. And I need the real experts to really guide and lead this. And so Calgary Hospital stood up and they were wonderful. The executive had been wonderful. The uh, the nursing staff really are wonderful. The post-recovery nursing staff are amazing. And the anesthetist cohort and group, they've they've really taken it on. Wow. And what we've now seen across the, the, the space of our past three years, we've now done more than 3,000 infusions. We've treated more than 160 veterans. Whoa. We have had zero suicides. Wow. Wow, and these are but but just to just to stress, these are the treatment resistant cases, right? The criteria: you come wow. into this program, you've tried meds, you've tried psychotherapy, nothing's working. And then in the in, in without the ketamine treatment, call it a control group, as morbid as it sounds, what would be the a suicide rate of those who wouldn't, who weren't part of the trial? You know, if if they just can't, if it was kind of the status quo, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Do we have those? So, do we have those stats? Yeah. So we're tracking something in the, in the order of eight to twelve percent. Oh, Your fidelity wow. is so high that it's a completion rate. 
Um, so the so the the issue now then becomes when we start looking at uh, at the population at risk because this is a population at high risk of suicidality, mm. and we then say, hey, you're a patient. You've been a patient of mine for months now, for years now, and you've been to hospital. You've been through numbers of psychologists and psychiatrists and GPs. No one has a solution for you. What does that do to your soul? Mm. And what does that do to your sense of I, am I going to be like this for the rest of my life? So, so we've been really blessed. Um, this program has been a huge success, and and we get feedback all of the time because we're we're continually looking at how to make our our program better. That's so, uh, this the task this year was to get ethics approve approval from, uh, from Defense and DVA Human Research Ethics Committee to study the program. And so uh, we've been we've been approved, and God love them. They went to town, and it was so awesome. The the, the feedback from the ethics uh, application took nine months to get through, and the people who were involved they they went through every single line, and they gave us feedback A to Z, AA to ZZ, and a few triple A. Mm. And we worked through the entire program, and we received approval a couple of months back to study this program. QBI at University of Queensland are sending down two PhD students to to undertake that study. I'll be at arm's length because I'm the clinician who runs the program. The research arm will be very arm's length for me, and it will do a prospective study long term. Mm. The data that we already have, we'll, we'll be putting in another ethics application to look at the past data of 3,000 cases, because even then, we I suspect we have the, the, the world's longest longitudinal data set, and, and that's across all continents. Wow. So wow. the ability then to say to our Therapeutic Goods Administration, hey, we have the data. Can we start looking at normalizing this for all Australians, not just veterans? Would yeah. be amazing. Wow, well done! I mean, congratulations. That's uh, uh, I'm sure that a podcast and and you know the five minutes you spoke about it could never capture the amount of work that's gone into getting that across the board. So, so what is it about ketamine in particular? And what, firstly, what is ketamine? What does it do to to the mind? And why are we generally, as a society, still so resistant? And as you said, you know, the the ethics committee went through line by line because this is you know a psychedelic. How, how do you view that? I guess problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's an institutional and cultural problem. So ketamine is an anesthetic medication. It was created in, in the 1970s for the purpose of having an anesthetic that allowed the person to breathe freely. There was no respiratory compromise. Hmm. So as a consequence of that, and, and how effective it was, it is now guaranteed supply by the World Health Organization, because if you are a field hospital, if you're a third world country, a vial of ketamine costs nothing, maybe 10 bucks US, Whereas more expensive pain medications cost so much more. Plus, you have mm. opioid problems and the problems with opioids. So, as a as an effective anesthetic agent that can be deployed and used safely in the field in third world countries in the emergency department, um, wow. this was created and used right the way through. If there were children presenting with burns uh, or fractures that needed to be reset in the emergency department, ketamine is one of their go to medications. Huh. Wow. Effective. Effective. Now. It came off patent um, for anesthesia sometime in uh, in 2001, 2002. Psychiatry picked it up because we were at the time questioning, hey, we've been stuck with this paradigm of antidepressants based on a particular theory called the monoamine theory for the past oh, three, four, five decades. We haven't really moved on. Hmm. All we've done is iterations of new medications with fewer supposed side effects increase the tolerability of meds, but we haven't changed the effectiveness of stuff that we're that we're trying to mm. we're trying to achieve. 
So what was really impressive was the National Institute for Mental Health in America. So, you know, my appreciation of America is this wonderful place where innovation happens, but it's also the corporate heartland mm. and capitalism is everywhere. Mm. The dude who who fronted up to a YouTube video and, and said he was he was at the time the head of the NIMH in America. He 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 said very clearly, stop investing in all of these new antidepressants. The vial of ketamine is what we need to investigate hmm. because it's already available. Hmm. This time last year, I was I was I was having a meeting with a, a broad a group of people at TGA, and uh, when the meeting first happened, I was wearing a suit. I must have looked a little bit corporate. They, they to me they looked a bit tense. Uh, the opening line was, "Doctor Lim, you realize that you can't make any money from this," and I said, "I know. That's the point." It costs nothing. It's already freely available, guaranteed supply by the World Health Organization. You could rock up to the emergency department and get this for pain. Mm. If someone rocks up with suicidality, they can't get it because it's not been indicated for that. Wow. How does it work? We're not sure how it works. There are 20 different metabolites of this medication. We think that two of them, and a guy in, in Adelaide's investigating in this, we think that is one of the two metabolites of the 20 that is responsible for the for the biochemical changes in the brain. We know, for example, that one of the amazing things that happens at a symptom level is within four hours, suicidality starts to drop down. Hmm. Hmm. And in my group, within two sessions, suicidality is really minimized. We also know that within four hours, the brain restoration activity of growing new brain cells, you can see, you can watch new brain cells happening. Wow. That's amazing. That That, that, that is really is, yeah. Wow. And so when we start talking about psychiatric conditions, particularly PTSD, in terms of synaptic disconnection syndrome, mm, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we say, hey, here's a chemical compound, ketamine, that can reverse that. We start talking like we're real doctors for the first time. <laughs> yeah, in a long not hippies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then we go, I don't care where this medication comes from. I don't care what it's associated with. It was a medication when it was first developed. It is the only one of the psychedelics that still is a medication in every hospital. In other words, we have very clear clinical governance around how to use this effectively and well and safely. Hmm. We're going to intrude into the anesthesia land, say lower dose, but safety guaranteed and assured. How do we do that? And for my for my a peace of mind, it's in hospital because you have the bevy of specialists who know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. Then you go. The area that we don't really know is for psychiatric purposes. We know what happens within seven days because we've done this so many many times. I want to stretch it out, and then repeated doses. What happens? So we have that data now. We can't talk about it. We can't publish it yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll be able to talk about that in a long-term manner. Uh, we'll be able to give an answer to, is it safe long-term? We, we have the answer now. Mm. We'll be able to say and speak a clear truth about, is it effective long-term? And what are the factors that can predict the effectiveness and safety about this medication long-term? Right. One incidental cool bit, which came, or two, two cool bits. Um, the first cool bit is the patients got better, and then they stopped taking their usual medications. Mm. <laughs> That wasn't me. I, I didn't. I, I didn't uh, encourage them. They just stopped taking their meds, and the guys. Yeah, it's been that. That's been that's been a surprise. Um, surprise, uh, completely. So, yeah, that's incredible. And and the other surprise is a, a double-edged sword. Where as my patients got better, their thinking ability got better. They started picking on their spouses more, <laughs> and then I get okay. called right. <laughs> 
lives you know, to say, hey. Take him off this. <laughs> but he's now a bully. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, uh, I guess uh, if they're seeing more clearly and and, and actively participating in uh, in their family lives, even if uh, at the risk of uh, conflict and resolving conflict, again, with yep. a long-term view of becoming healthier as right. the multitude of systems that are in play there, uh, then, of course, even uh, conflict can be uh, can be you know positive. I think it's an incredible thing that you have done and pushed that through in Australia with ketamine. I guess as the as the stepping stone, perhaps to some more innovative approaches. Yeah. Have you, and I'm conscious that you can't perhaps talk about it, but if I'm to put some words in your mouth, this is also happening, uh, as in you're you're getting greater results for treatment resistant depression and PTSD in the veteran community, but perhaps with far fewer side effects uh, that yes. we have seen or are seeing through the traditional methods, which a don't necessarily have the anywhere near the effectiveness as far as success rates, but also come with a whole bag and a whole host of rather severe, in some cases, side effects. Is that accurate? Yeah, correct. Correct. So what we're seeing absolutely aligns with that. Yeah. Uh, and so the opportunity now is to say, um, have we accidentally or maybe purposefully discovered a pathway that is more effective with less side effects, has better benefit to the functionality of the human? Hmm. And if we're able to articulate that and show that, then we then start going, can we start doing some predictor models to go, for whom is this able to achieve? Hmm. And if if this is achievable in 80% of people, that is stunning. That is spectacular. Hmm. It's such a big shift from 30% to 80%. Huh. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, it's an incredible shift. Uh, perhaps my last question, or, or maybe I'll put it as a last two questions, I'll put it as one. Firstly, given the density of the subject we've talked about, and, and we've kind of jumped from various aspects of it. Firstly, is there something that you wanted to say that I haven't asked you, or, or we've kind of uh, glanced over that uh, you want to double click on? And then my last question would be is, what is your greatest fear and hope, given everything we've spoken about today? Oh, look, first of all, thank you for the opportunity, because your platform clearly has a reach that is meaningful. What I really want to establish is a sense of hope that it is not yet over. Hmm. And so the guys who think that this is just the end and I have nothing else, there are people working really, really, really hard and teams of people working really, really, really hard to come up with paradigms of care that is more effective. Hmm. The, the end state that I would really like to see is this whole area becoming completely normalized so hmm. that we can speak so so ably about this. And, a, and you know, a, a resident, an intern, a psychiatrist registrar can know about all of the treatment paradigms available and have no problems accessing it. And then being able to say to the patient or client in front of them that, hey, for you, I want you to start this pathway first, cycle back and circle back later into this if we need to. Yeah. And have it a stepped gradient. I would like that to happen within five years. Mm. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I do have to ask one other question because I know it's going to come up yep. when this goes out. Is there any way for people currently experiencing treatment-resistant depression and PTSD to join trials or to get on board with some of these, uh, more, I guess, innovative or emerging forms of treatment? Yeah. So uh, speaking of my wheelhouse with ketamine, the program is available to everyone. So we have people flying down from Queensland, uh, WA, and we oh. don't have anyone yet from Northern Territory coming down that could that could change sometime soon. We have one person in Tasmania, but DVA, if they approve, uh, will will transport and accommodate you, uh, the veteran, for this program for as long as it's effective. And and we haven't had a knockback yet. 
Wow. Second statement, we are looking at creating more centers. So if there is a hospital that is willing and able and interested in creating this in partnership, happy days, come on board. Wow. Intent, and and this is following from a conversation with the Governor General, his comment to me was, why isn't this everywhere around Australia? <laughs> exactly. And so... We are, we are now on track for that. We are, we're opening up in, in Adelaide next year. We've got Wagga on site. I really want to map this to where current bases are. So Melbourne, Townsville, and so mm. forth. Once we've got that, the only barrier is that right now, you do have to go through the stock standard procedures of medication, psychotherapy. And my only criteria is uh, you need to have an ongoing psychologist to be working with you. And also that psychologist, I, I want them to be able to work closely with, with, the, with the member so that when the opportunity to do different, deeper, better psychotherapy happens, typically a, a typical thing that happens in my program, they note it, they grab it and they say, hey, dude, we're going to work harder. Let's go. And then I get a phone call and they go, you know, that black hole thing that happened. Yeah, yeah, we've cleared that. We're, we're on to we're on to the next trauma. And that that's just brilliant when 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 that happens. So uh, so our criteria is that it's, it's open right the way throughout Australia. DVA has facilitated. DVA has uh, we we've become a line item for DVA. So we have clear entry points for for all members. It doesn't matter where you live. Uh, we Wonderful. can onboard. Uh, we're on track for, for we have, we have Wagga. We're on track for Adelaide. I am hoping for Brisbane and uh, and Perth and Sydney next year. Melbourne, if there's an opportunity, let's let's have a look at it. That's wonderful. Wow, Dr. Lim. If if I can give you a virtual standing ovation, uh, then uh, please take it that you're getting one. Uh, that's absolutely amazing. Congratulations on everything you're doing as a again as a veteran, as a service person, as somebody who's got uh, some of my best friends going through some really hard times uh, with this stuff. Yeah, thank you for what you're doing. I think it's uh, I think you're 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 forging a new path, uh, and hopefully uh, on the other end, a treatment that's uh, much more effective and the resultant lives that our veterans and for other emergency services workers uh, live far more uh, wholesome and they're much closer to the original state of well-being, I guess. Uh, on that note, thank you very much for giving me so much of your time. I know uh, you're a busy man. You've got uh, multiple irons in the fire. So uh, yeah, really, really appreciate you giving me so much of your time. Thank you, Doc. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Thank you, and until the next time.